Hello, this is Nicola Torbett coming to you from the occupied Chochenyo Ohlone territory, now known as Oakland, California. You're listening to The Word is Resistance, a podcast of showing up for racial justice or surge, and specifically surge faith. This is the podcast where we put the Christian lectionary scriptures for each week into conversation with the realities of our times, realities of colonization, racism and white supremacy, of patriarchy and misogyny, of homophobia, xenophobia, and ecocide. And we ask what it means in this environment of dramatic inequity and violence to follow a homeless, brown-skinned rabbi who lived and taught and ministered and died under military occupation in a tiny vassal nation of a mighty empire. Or more specifically, what does it mean to follow this Jesus when we are positioned more like Roman citizens than like Jesus' first disciples? Because we are a project of Surge, this podcast primarily addresses white people. We are white people challenging and supporting other white people as we take action to end racism and white supremacy following the leadership of people of color. That said, all listeners are of course welcome, and we especially appreciate feedback from and accountability to listeners of color. As I sit with this question this morning, what does it mean to follow Jesus when we are positioned more like Romans? I can't help but think about a post I saw this morning from a Facebook friend who just returned from Christmas in Tornillo, a resistance camp just outside the detention camp for immigrant children in Tornillo, Texas. She points out that we are, quote, quite literally the citizens living next door to evil, end quote. We are living next door to the place where Jesus is being held in a concentration camp. Here is more of what my friend had to say. I've tried a couple of times to sort through the experience of going to Tornillo and witnessing firsthand the concentration camp for children. I've tried, and I can't possibly say enough. What I know is that each time I approach this, I feel a wild, raging fury and grief that cannot be contained in a few words. I will tell you that I was raised Catholic and have said many Hail Marys in my lifetime. And the day that I first witnessed the concentration camp, heard the sound of children playing inside a barbed wire fence, I could barely remember the first phrase. Hail Mary, full of grace, pray for us sinners. Hail Mary, full of grace, full of grace. Mother of God, full of grace, and the sound of children's laughter. Something happened to me that day. I was filled with a coldness I can't shake and can't share, a deep and awful coldness. But it isn't a thing I'm supposed to spritz or smudge or wear stones or do a ritual to get rid of. I don't know when I will lay this down, this wild, raging grief. I don't know when I will get to feel what passed for normal again. I do know that this is mine, and I'm going to do the best I can to carry it and continue whatever the piece I am working on until it's time to lay it down. That's the end of her post. I'm deeply convicted by this post. I'm reminded that part of what it means to follow Jesus as a documented American citizen is to go where Jesus is, literally to put my own body as close to the place where his body is as I can, 
and in so doing to shoulder some small part of the risk and vulnerability he is saddled with. Today, as we approach this passage about Jesus' baptism, I can't help but think of his later question to his disciples. Can you drink the cup that I will drink or be baptized with the baptism I will undergo? I hear him asking, can you face the consequences I must face just because of who I am and what I am called to do? Are you willing to enter into the conflict, join the fray, or will you stay safely on the sidelines while I take on evil with my very body? Of course, I'm jumping ahead here. We're still at the start of Jesus' story. His ministry hasn't even launched yet. He hasn't yet called the first of those disciples to whom he will pose his challenging question. It's interesting to me that his ministry doesn't start until he goes out and is submerged in the Jordan River by the strange and fiery wilderness preacher known as John the Baptist. I am curious about this baptism, what it meant for Jesus and what it means for us today. That's the question I want to take up in this week's lectionary. The story of Jesus' baptism is told in all three of the Synoptic Gospels, so there's clearly something important about it, so important that baptism with water has been maintained as a sacrament in nearly all of our many denominations, despite the fact that it is unclear whether Jesus ever baptized anyone. Most of the people in our pews on Sunday are probably familiar with baptism, but I think grappling with this week's scripture is a way to deepen their and our understanding of what it really means and how to live it out. I'm going to give away my point right here at the start. I think baptism is a much more radical thing than we give it credit for. I think a truer understanding of what the sacrament means would go a long way to galvanize Jesus' followers into a powerful resistance force that could pose a real threat to white supremacy and all the systems of domination, while also drawing us deeper into beloved community. A few months ago, I shared with you here that I think sometimes the food we are offering people in our progressive churches, the bread we have on offer, is not chewy or sustaining enough to keep them away from the imperial bread of patriarchy and white supremacy. I would say the same about our tepid employment of baptism. Christendom has stolen so much of the political power from our faith. By co-opting the faith into the service of empire, Christendom has stripped the gospel of its resistance potential, defanged it, made it so much less threatening to the powers that be. I sometimes wonder if Herod would even bother to send his murderous squads out to destroy the meek and mild Jesus whose birth we mark during this epiphany time. Really, he needn't bother. These days, in this time and place, Jesus and his followers pose no real threat to the power structure. And so, on this Baptism of the Lord Sunday, I think we have an opportunity to reclaim some of the power that has been stripped from our faith, to, like John, invite our people into the kind of baptism, the kind of repentance, 
that threatens the power the powers by our mutual belovedness and our willingness to stand with each other in the name of love. This is risky business. We know what happened to John, and no, don't come at me with that, the girl made me do it story. John was beheaded because whatever he was doing out there in the wilderness made Herod fear for his own authority. So let's talk about what John was doing. First of all, we know that he was drawing people out of the cities and towns and into the wilderness. This is powerful symbolism for a couple reasons. One is that in the Jewish scriptural tradition that both John and Jesus were raised in, the wilderness conjures up the religious memory of the Exodus, the time when God freed the Hebrew people from oppressive conditions. It conjures up the wilderness time, the time when the people were no longer in slavery, but not yet in the promised land. It's an in-between place, the wilderness, a training place, a place of unlearning the old ways of slavery and learning a whole new way to live as free and beloved people, subject only to the covenant made with God. So all of that is operating in these stories of John's baptism. The people are being drawn out of the colonized cities of Roman-occupied Palestine and into the wilderness where they are cared for by God and where they are learning to be free and faithful to God rather than Rome. Sources suggest that John baptized on the eastern shore of the Jordan, and then followers would cross back over to the western shore, just as their ancestors had as they entered the promised land. Baptism means entering the promised land anew as free people. Of course, at the time of Jesus' baptism, the wilderness had a second subversive significance, which is that the wilderness was the place where revolutionary military leaders took their recruits to train. The wilderness was a breeding ground for insurrection against the Roman occupying force, which was concentrated in the cities. We don't know exactly what John the Baptist was recruiting people into out there at the Jordan River, how he imagined this kingdom of God that he was talking about, but we can surmise that his baptism invited his followers into some kind of a struggle with oppressive forces. How do we know this? See, for him, baptism signified repentance. This word, too, has lost a lot of its power for us. It has come to be associated with maybe feeling sorry for having done something or maybe turning away from some kind of personal, individualized sin. But we have to remember that the Judaism out of which John was operating had a much more robust sense of social sin. In other words, the ways we are pulled away from God by the pressures of the dominant culture. That's really what all that scriptural stuff about idol worship is about. The ways that we are conditioned to worship things other than God. In our culture, things like money, power, prestige, approval, maybe even the safety that comes from playing by the rules of one's own society. Idol worship happens when we place the pursuit of these things ahead of our relationship with God. The Greek word for repentance, which is metanoia, addresses social sin as well as personal sin. Metanoia signifies a dramatic shift in priorities, a change in how we see the world. Reverend Brad Braxton writes for the African American Lectionary, 
that metanoia is revolutionary, that it involves taking on a completely different mindset that puts one in solidarity with suffering people and in conflict with the dominant culture that is oppressing them. Metanoia situates us in opposition to all the things that draw us away from God and his mutually interdependent web of God's life. In other words, it places us in opposition to empire. That's what John the Baptist was doing, and that's what we are doing when we baptize people. This meaning of repentance has been all but lost in the cultural Christianity of this country, which is so thoroughly accommodated to American empire and the dominant way of life that goes along with it. This way of life is characterized by things like individualism, worship of upward mobility, self-interest, and an obsession with personal safety and comfort. Christianity has accommodated to these things in our country. And yet this old meaning of repentance is essential to the meaning and function of baptism. Baptism is meant to mark a dramatic change in worldview that draws us into conflict with everything in the dominant culture that works against God's life. When is the last time you thought about, much less taught about, the traditional baptismal vows? In the Catholic Church, those seeking baptism are asked, Do you renounce Satan? and all his ways, and all his empty show. Now, I know a lot of our folks are squeamish about the whole Satan thing. For many, the use of the term is superstitious at best, oppressive at worst. And there's no question that the concept of Satan has been used to dangerous ends. Think witch hunts and the persecution of Native Americans and Jews. It is usually those viewed as a threat to white male power who are cast as being in league with Satan. And so many of us have found ways to talk about the inclination toward evil in other ways that don't use that term. The United Methodist hymnal, for example, puts the baptismal vows this way. Do you renounce the spiritual forces of wickedness? Reject the evil powers of this world and repent of your sin. Do you accept the freedom and power God gives you to resist evil, injustice, and oppression in whatever forms they present themselves? I wonder how many of the folks in our pews know that their baptismal vows obligate them to resist white supremacy, because there is no clearer working of Satan or the spiritual forces of wickedness in our country than white supremacy a force of wickedness that has so pervaded the dominant culture that is, it is often invisible to those of us who swim in it all our lives. And we are obliged by our baptismal vows to resist it. Baptism invites us into a conflict with every form of wickedness, all that works against God's life, and there is nothing that destroys life in this country so broadly and so brutally as white supremacy. So baptism taken seriously is a dangerous proposition in this time. I believe a proper understanding of baptism might galvanize Christians into a much more powerful force for justice in this country. It's not just that baptism signifies a commitment to struggle. Even beyond that, it signifies entry into a beloved community of solidarity. I see this too when I imagine Jesus' baptism. We know that John baptized all kinds of people, tax collectors and peasants and soldiers, 
people from the cities and the surrounding countryside, and that Jesus underwent the same baptism as all of these folks. What's more, they were all baptized in a river that would hardly have been a sparkling crystal spring. The Jordan is muddy and murky even now, and we can only imagine that in the absence of sewage treatment plants, it would have been filled with human and animal waste. Not exactly the kind of place you want to get dunked. I think there is something important about this baseness, this elemental submersion into the muck and mire of life that shaped Jesus and has the power to shape us. He entered into it in solidarity with all people who lived in that muck and mire on the daily. He entered into all the messiness and bodiliness and difficulty of human life on this planet, got as close to it as he could, literally bathed in it, and I believe that shaped his worldview and the ministry he would then enter into in service of people who were physically and mentally ill, despised, poor, cast out, ashamed. Following this baptism, Jesus entered into the vulnerability of those most at risk and declared his allegiance to them over the powerful and wealthy of his society, even when it meant getting more than his hands dirty. And I wonder if this still might have something to do with what baptism means or could mean if part of what we are agreeing to in being baptized is to enter fully into the messiness, the muck and mire, both within ourselves and in the world. I wonder if it means radical acceptance of ourselves, even in our messiness, our imperfection, our tendency to make mistakes. I wonder if it means we enter into the fray and choose a side, the side of those suffering most immediately. In fact, baptism in the Jordan River makes me think of the interfaith action that took place last month at the U.S.-Mexico border. Nearly 400 people of faith from all over the world hiked into Borderlands State Park, south of San Diego, to the place where the border wall runs into the ocean. There we were able to see and pray for some of the asylum seekers who had gathered on the other side of a metal fence. We got as close to them as we could. As the border patrol began moving up on our group, using bully sticks to shove us back from the wall, many of us went to our knees, both as a position of nonviolence and also because it makes us almost impossible to move, especially when we're kneeling on rough sand. But as the tide continued to come in, we found ourselves kneeling in surf that is contaminated with runoff from the Tijuana River. It was a baptism of sorts. And it was messy, and it was profoundly beautiful to be in solidarity with those gathered on the other side of the fence. And that brings us to the last part of today's gospel passage, the part where the heavens open and the spirit descends, and a voice says, you are my son, the beloved, with you I am well pleased. Now I know full well that this moment is part of the messianic story, evidence for many that Jesus is uniquely the Son of God. But suddenly today I'm reading it differently. I'm reading this as the moment when Jesus enters into belovedness by entering into solidarity with all the other people undergoing baptism. He becomes fully a part of the beloved community that exists on the margins of empire in the wilderness spaces, 
And that is what grants him spirit power and enables him to do the ministry God has called him to do. And what if that is the baptism that is also available to us? Perhaps it is time for us to remember our baptism. Perhaps it is time to renew our baptismal vows with a clearer understanding of Satan and all his ways and all his empty pomp as it operates in this country, in this time. One of the most powerful stories I've ever heard about the renewal of baptismal vows appears in my friend Bill Wiley Kellerman's book, Seasons of Faith and Conscience. In this book, he tells the story of a liturgical direct action that he and his friends undertook in the wee hours of Easter morning in 1983. They had gathered, he explained, at a cabin within walking distance of Wurtsmith Air Force, Air Force Base, where 16 B-52s sat on the runway, loaded with newly developed cruise missiles targeting sites in the Soviet Union. Shortly after midnight, after having read the scriptures of the traditional Easter vigil service, the group set out on foot toward the Air Force Base. I'll pick up now with his words. At the barbed wire fence, we paused and circled as a group, here for two symbolic deeds. The first was to light the Paschal candle. Into these our dark times enter the light of Christ. So we prayed, flame in hand. The second, indeed one with the other, was to cut the fence. From our Bible study, we were mindful how the seal on the stone of the tomb is against tampering, a legal barrier backed up by one account with force of armed guard. Twang, the security of death guarding death was broken in liturgy. The wall was breached. Thereupon, seven of us began our three and a half mile trek toward the high security area, the loaded B-52s. It had been our intention to paint at the foot of the runway in six foot high letters legible from a landing plane, Christ is risen, disarm. We toted along supplies sufficient, buckets of yellow paint, brushes, rollers, all. The wet and freezing snow, however, foreclosed that plan. We walked on, mostly in silence, lying down periodically in a fumbling comedy to avoid the view of patrolling security cars. As the nuclear storage bunkers came into sight, we arrived at a small building, the enclosure for some sort of electronic equipment, here on the walls, we inscribed our message, paint congealing in the freezing drizzle. And here we carried the vigil liturgy another step forward. We renewed our baptismal vows. I had not foreseen the personal power of that moment. To look down the runway toward the machines and their cargo, and there to renounce Satan and all his works. There I promised in a way not fully understood before, to persevere in resisting evil, and whenever I fall into sin, repent and return to the Lord. A life may be called back to such moments, indeed may turn on them. It's a powerful story. So my question for you, friends, on this baptism of our Lord Sunday is where will you remember your baptism? Where is God calling you to cast your lot with beloved community and against the forces of evil? How can you take on some part of the vulnerability shouldered by Jesus as he is incarnated in this country in this time? Let's remember our baptism.
Amen. got a couple of calls to action for you this week. If you are a pastor or a lay leader in a church, I invite you to find some others and talk about how your church or a small group of you might reclaim the power of baptism. Could you build the renewal of baptismal vows into an upcoming service? At my own church, we are thinking about using the season of Lent to dig deep into this tradition and to do some soul-searching around what baptism means to us now in this time and this place. Then on Easter, those who feel called will be baptized again into the resistance movement. I'm curious whether we might hold this service in a location that is a little more threatening to the powers that be. Feel free to follow me or Second Acts, the liturgical direct action group I'm a part of, on Facebook. We'll post updates there. Another approach to living out this week's gospel passage is to find a way to put your own body as close as you can to the body of Jesus incarnated in vulnerable people today. I'll post links in the transcript to a couple of the national calls for solidarity with immigrant children and other asylum seekers as well as First Nations people who are under siege in British Columbia this week as the Canadian police make way for the Kinder Morgan pipeline. But you can also think about who is most at risk in your own community and how you can enter into productive conflict to change the policies that are impacting them. There's maybe no better time to do that than Martin Luther King Day or that weekend. It's coming up next weekend. Many communities host a day of service or offer a prayer breakfast or something like that, and those are all fine, but they do not always capture the radical legacy with which King left us. To see how one community is trying to recapture and live out that more radical legacy, Google 96 Hours of Direct Action. I'll post some links in the transcript for inspiration. Thank you for joining me today. Let us know what you think and how your actions are going by commenting on our SoundCloud or Facebook pages, and be sure to tune in next week for another Liberation Word. You can find out more about Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org, and our podcast lives at SoundCloud. Search on The Word is Resistance. You can interact with us there if you have questions or need help with action ideas. Transcripts are available on our website, which include references, credits, and copyright information. The music you hear is a live recording of a song gifted to the freedom movement by Dr. Vincent Harding, We Are Building Up a New World. The group you hear singing is No Enemies, a multiracial group of activists and musicians in Denver, Colorado, who come together for movement choir practice to bring singing back into direct actions and other movement spaces. This particular choir practice is from December 2014, and it's being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use this song for this podcast. Our sound editor this week is Maxwell Pearl. Thanks so much, Max. As always, blessings to you in all that you do to resist injustice and in all that you do to build up a new world.
Until next time, I'm Nicola Torbett.